Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Lord God, we, uh, we come before you as uh, we approach your word that we do so in a way that uh, would glorify you. I pray, Father, that uh, our hearts would be ready to receive your word. I pray that our hearts would be ready to hear your word. And that, Lord, that you would transform us and change us from the inside out with your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, as, as we learn today about what worship is, worship is, our hearts and minds would be open to the truth and not our own pre-set understandings, Lord. That we'd be open to what your word has to say and that we would conform and transform our lives to that. We thank you and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, please turn with me to um, the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 100. And uh, if you're not really sure where Psalm is, it's actually kind of easy to find because it's right pretty close to the center of the Bible. Um, it's uh, right after the book of Job and it's right before the book of Proverbs. And, uh, and so, again, we're going to be in Psalm 100 and we're going to begin in verse 1. And it says... Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know the Lord. Note that the Lord is, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Even, enter the gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Um, I want to welcome you back to part two of this series uh, titled A Call to Worship. And the reason why we're in this series is because we are called as Christ followers to worship God. Right? We were created and we were called to live a life of worship to the creator of all things. And especially for those who confess Jesus is Lord and Savior, we are expected to worship Christ. We're expected to worship God. Worship is just a part of who we are. It's just what we do, which leads us to really the important question is, is then what is worship? Because as we talked about last week, you know, worship carries with it some baggage. The, the idea of worship carries with it some baggage. I mean, the word itself is, is loaded for most of us because most of us, when we hear the word worship, we have this idea that pops up into our head. We have some preconceived ideas about what worship is supposed to be. And, and that image, you know, may or it may not actually be what worship is at heart. I mean, for some of you, worship is, is about thinking about singing and music. For others, it's about bowing down or lifting your hands and for some of you, worship is about something internal, right? And others of you, it's, it's about something external, right? We all have an idea of what worship is, but really, what is it? I mean, at the heart of it, what, what makes an act of worship actually worship? What is, it makes, what is it that we do that makes something worshipful? Is it, is, it, is it something I do or is it something else? Is it, you know, is it skill is it tradition? Is it, is it a ritual? Is it a state of mind? Is it something else? I mean, what is it? What makes worship worship? And, and this is a really important subject, especially for those of us who are part of God's family, because we're expected to worship God in ways that he accepts. We're expected to worship God in a way that's fitting. And so it's important to know what makes an activity that we do actually worshipful. And it's important to know what worship really is and is about. Otherwise, 
We're just going to come here and we're just going to like copy and do what other people do without actually knowing if what we're doing is actually pleasing to God or not. And so it's important to know what worship actually is about. And so last week we began this series and we looked at this question and we discovered that this idea of worship is really a big complex idea that isn't easily defined. In fact, there in the Bible are four Hebrew words that are used for the word worship and there are 13 different Greek words. I mean, if you think about that, we have one English word that expresses this idea. And each of these Hebrew and Greek words has their own nuance and their own shade of meaning to to what worship is. And so worship is big and complex and it's multifaceted and it really resists a simple explanation. It's not easily defined. And so worship is this big, important idea. But what we discovered, though, is that that we can take most of these words and most of these ideas that are represented by these words, and we can really separate them into two essential basic categories, okay? Two basic ideas about worship. And the first one we discovered is found throughout the Old Testament, as well as the Gospels and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And and for the most part, this, this idea is this worship that's centered on a physical act of bowing down. Okay, worship is, is, is focused on a person getting on his knees or her knees, bowing down before God in awe and reverence and, and respect and submission. It's an outward physical act of reverence toward God. That's the first idea of what worship is. And the second category of worship we find really occurs in the letters to the apostles. And it's this idea of worship that's conveyed, um, you know, not so much in bowing down physically before God, but instead submitting ourselves to God internally and serving him with our actions and our attitudes. Our worship is about the things that we do with our lives and our bodies and even our possessions. Worship is about actively serving God. This begins internally as we worship Christ in our hearts and our minds. And that worship then is manifested in the things that we do out in the world. And this, and, and it, this is best expressed by Paul in his letter to the Romans where he writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And, and, and we do this with our bodies and we do this with, with, with our with our decisions and our mind and our attitude, and we live out this form of worship, which is the second category that we talked about. And the conclusion that we came to is that all forms of worship, whether it is bowing down physically in an overt expression of physical worship or an internal devotion that results in service to God, at the center of what worship really is, is God. At the center of worship is God. You see, worship is not about us. It's not about what we like. Worship isn't about our music preferences. Worship isn't about our opinions. Worship isn't about our religious traditions. Worship is always to be about God. And the central idea of what makes worship worship is found in the main text of this series, which is Revelation 4.11, which says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. You see, the central idea of worship is the fact that God is worthy. God is worthy. In fact, the word worship from, from old English is actually from the word worthship, which means that someone or something or some, uh, or some object is worthy. Okay? And what that means for us simply is this, is that when you are worshiping God, you are declaring to him by your actions and your attitudes, be they outward expressions or inward devotions, you're declaring God to be worthy. Worship is about the fact that God is worthy of all that we can offer him. 
You see, God is worthy of you bowing down before him as your king. God is worthy of you submitting yourself to his authority and his word. God is worthy of you taking your prized possessions and casting them at his feet. God is worthy of your very best in service. He is worthy of you loving your neighbor as yourself. He is worthy of you loving your enemies. He is worthy of you doing everything in your power to share the hope of Jesus Christ with this dying world. He is worthy of you controlling your thoughts and keeping your mind pure. He is worthy of you denying yourself and, and picking up your cross and following him daily. He is worthy of the very best that you have to offer in every area of your life, whether it's at home or school or work or hanging out with your friends or even here at church. God is worthy of your time. God is worthy of your talent. God is worthy of your stuff. He is worthy of you coming here every Sunday to sing to him with all your heart and to listen to the word being preached. He is absolutely worthy of all of that. That is the heart of worship. And in this this series, we're going to explore what it means for us to, as Christ followers, to live that out in our lives and acts of worship. And so uh, we're, we're going to explore what it means for us to come together as a church every Sunday and to attend and participate in what we call a worship service. Um, and in fact, today we're going we're to look at one of the most common forms of worship inside the church. We're going to look at what it means to worship God through music and, and to worship him through through song. And let me, let me just tell you, this is not only the most, one of the most important and one of the most common forms of worship, it's one of the most misunderstood forms of worship. It is one of the most argued about forms of worship. It is the one of the most debated forms of worship. And perhaps it's even one of the most divisive forms of worship. But it's also one of the most important forms of worship. You see, over and over again, we are encouraged by the Bible to sing to God, to worship him through music and song. Psalm 100, 1 through 2 tells us, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Psalm 95, 1 through 2 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Psalm 147, 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. You see, singing to the Lord is an important and it is a fitting way to worship God. Singing songs to God with thanksgiving and gladness and joy is proper and it's fitting way for us to express that God is worthy to us. That is why we do it here on Sunday morning. That is why we sing. That God is worthy and it's fitting you know, for us to worship him that way. It's pleasant to God. It is fitting for us to lift our voices up with thanksgiving and praise and joyfully sing to him. It's a beautiful and important biblical form of worship. That's why every Christian church since the beginning has been singing songs as a part of their worship service. Singing and music is, is a Bible prescribed form of worship. But it's not just for Sunday. Right? Worship you know, and worshiping the Lord through song isn't just a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing. The Bible encourages us to continually to worship God through, through, through song every single day. Psalm 71.8 says, My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Psalm uh, 104.33 says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will, I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Worshiping God and expressing his worthiness through music is something we can do anytime and anywhere. And it's something we should do, especially nowadays, 
All right? With our mobile devices, you have the ability to listen to and sing to you know, praise and worship songs, whether they're old or new, whatever your taste is, anytime, anywhere, any day. All right? And it's a great way not only to worship God, but it's also a great way to stay mentally and spiritually connected to him. It's a great way to keep your, your thoughts on God, worshiping him anytime, anywhere through music. Now, the fact is, just about everybody, and I say just about because it's hard to say everybody inclusive because there's always going to be somebody that doesn't agree, but just about everybody agrees that music is an important form of worship and that music is a, is a fitting way to express God's worthiness. And the Bible prescribes music and singing as a mode of worship and that is fitting and is pleasing to, to the Lord. Okay, just about everybody agrees on this. It doesn't matter what church you grew up in. It doesn't matter what the denomination was that you grew up from. It doesn't matter what songs you used to sing. It doesn't matter what the color of your hymn book was. All right? Just about everybody agrees that worshiping God through music is appropriate and it's fitting and it should be done. Okay? But let me ask you a question. If everybody's in agreement then, then what's the problem? I mean, I mean, why are there so many people that, that, that have so many bitter personal disagreements about worship music? Why are there so, so many strong, strong opinions about it? Because, because here is, here's the truth. People end up going you know, to different churches because of worship music. People leave churches because of worship music. Congregations have split and become different churches because of worship music. Churches have left their denominational affiliations because of worship music. Entire generations have gotten divided over songs that they sing to God in church. I mean, we agree that it's important and biblical to worship God through music. Then what is the problem? Why is there a controversy? Why is there such a big deal for so many people? Well, the answer is really actually quite simple. At the heart of this issue is simply a heart issue. You see, the problem with this conflict is that people impose unbiblical standards on a form of biblical worship. I'm going to say that again. The problem with this conflict is people impose unbiblical standards on a biblical form of worship. And I want to be really clear here, okay? Because what I'm not saying is, okay, when I say people are, when they, when they impose unbiblical standards, I'm not saying that they're imposing evil standards, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, that, that the argument stems out from a group of people who, out of the evil of their heart, want to compose music that has evil in nature. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that people are imposing external standards to worship and worship music that are not found in the Bible. They're imposing standards that the Bible does not prescribe. They're imposing personal preference standards and genre standards. And they're not just, you know, standards that are explicitly or implicitly prescribed in the Bible. And because the Bible doesn't prescribe them, they are by definition unbiblical because they're not from the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that these standards are bad, all right? It doesn't mean that these standards are, are malicious. It just means that the Bible has not prescribed them. Therefore, they are unbiblical. For example, there are Christians who, there's a Christian denomination that doesn't believe that worshiping God in a church should involve musical instruments. They believe that you worship the Lord only through your voice only. That's it. Now, here's the thing. I think acapella music is absolutely amazing. It's a wonderful, beautiful form of worship. Listening to voices um, come together in different parts of harmony as they sing to the Lord can be awe-inspiring and even tear-evoking. 
Okay? It's one of my favorite forms of worship. And, and, and one of my favorite worship albums of all time is, is an older one called The Acapella Project by a group named Glad. And, and what this is is just five voices. All it is. It's a five-part harmony uh, without any instruments. And each one of those songs, every time I hear it, tugs at my heart. I, I know all the parts in my, my head. I mean, it's a beautiful way to sing. But it is not a biblical standard to say you have to sing without instruments. That is not a biblical standard. The Bible does not say thou shalt not worship the Lord with instrument. Okay? In fact, it says the exact opposite. In Psalm 150 we read, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everybody, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You see, the text tells worshipers that they're encouraged to use instruments. They're encouraged to sing and play with wind instruments and stringed instruments and even percussion instruments. Okay, so the condition to worship without instruments is a matter of personal preference. It is not a biblical standard. It is an unbiblical limitation of what worship music is to be. And just about every controversy that surrounds music is rooted in this kind of a misunderstanding. Just about every controversy and every argument and every debate that surrounds worship music is rooted in something other than a standard from the Bible. It is rooted in personal preference. It's rooted in a particular tradition. It's rooted in somebody's upbringing. It can even be rooted in bad theology. Okay, but very seldom is it ever rooted in what the Bible actually says about music. In fact, most people who have an issue about worship music really have no idea what the Bible actually says about music. And they even don't even have an idea of the context behind what the Bible actually has to say. In fact, let me just show you what I'm, what I'm talking about. I want to point out a couple of scriptures here and I want to talk about what they mean to illustrate my point. Ephesians, in Ephesians 5.19, it says that we are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now from these couple of texts, there's a couple of observations that we can make. Number one, the focus of worship, regardless of what the type of the song is, be it a psalm you know, or a hymn or a spiritual song, the focus of Worship music is God. We are to sing to God. We are to make melody to God. That's the number one biblical criteria for music and for worship music is that it's focused on God. Number two, for a song to be worshipful, it must express in word and mood that, 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 that God is worthy. That God is worthy. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your adulation. He's worthy of your praise. God is worthy of your heart and attention. God is worthy of your thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his love endures forever. Okay, those are words out of the Psalms and it's also the words out of one of our favorite songs. All right, they express that God is worthy. And then the third criteria is that a worship song must be theologically sound. 
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Worship music must have must have a theological basis. It must be theologically sound. It must express, you know, truth about God. The words, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. That is theologically sound. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. That is theologically sound. So the standards that, 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 that have been developed the biblical standards for worship music must be, number one, centered on God. Number two, expresses that God is worthy. And number three, must be theologically sound. But notice, we're not talking about instruments. We're not talking about beat. We're not talking about singers or choirs or even styles of music. Right? These are not things that are addressed in the Bible. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Right there, it says something about style of music. It says that we're to sing psalms, presumably from the book of Psalm, and says to sing spiritual songs and hymns. See, the Bible does say something about style. It says to sing hymns. So it does talk about style of music, right? Well, no, actually, it doesn't, or at least not in the way that you're thinking. You see, Americans, we see the word hymn, and we think of songs that come out of a out of a book like this, all right? This book right here is called a hymnal, and it's full of wonderful songs, all right? These are Baptists' hymns out of, in, in this hymnal. It's a collection of songs that, that are, have been identified as hymns, and, and they all have a similar kind of timing. They all have a same kind of, similar kind of rhythm. They have a similar kind of feel to them, right? And, and this is what most modern, you know, Protestant Americans think of when they hear the word hymn. Now, every denomination has its own hymn book, Okay, every denomination has its own collection of songs that expresses their own theological perspective. But but really, most of these songs actually go across denominational lines, all right? Because they have many of the songs in common. But everyone has their own little differences too. But but what what, what the important thing is, is is this idea of what what a hymn is is for most of us as Christians is that is a song that comes out of one of these books like this. But is that a biblical idea of what a hymn is? I mean, is that what, really what the Bible says? Is, is it what the Bible is referring to when, when we hear the word hymn? Well, yes and no. Uh, you see, yes, because the songs in this book are in fact hymns. Okay, the songs in those, this book are hymns. They are biblical. They are focused on God. They glorify God, right? And they're theologically sound. But no, because hymns are not defined in a narrow category of music like the songs in this book. The songs found in this book are only American and English style of songs called hymns. You see, hymns are not some narrow type of music. Actually, the definition of a hymn is so much broader than what we bring to the table with our understanding. You see, the word hymn that we have in English comes from the Greek word humnos, humnos. Okay, and this Greek word humnos is defined as a hymn, a sacred song, a song of praise to God. Right? It's a meditation in song. Okay, it's a song that gives honor and praise and thanksgiving to God. That's what a hymn is. That is the definition of what hymn is. That's, that's the definition from the Greek idea. So 
It has nothing to do with beats. It has nothing to do with instruments or red books or old-timey songs. The, the hymn generically is a sacred song that gives honor to God, praise and thanksgiving to God. That's what a hymn is. So victory in Jesus, that's a hymn. But also is blessed be your name. That is also a hymn. There are both songs that give honor and praise to God. They both affirm the glory of God. They're from two different eras, and they're from two different genres, but biblically speaking, they're both considered hymns. Just like because he lives, that's absolutely him. And so is Jesus Messiah. Again, those songs are centered on God. They express his worthiness, and theologically, they are both sound, and they give honor and praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute. Hymns we sing today from this red book here, those are songs from a pure form of music. I mean, today's worship music is, is rooted in popular culture. So it's, it's music that's based on what's popular today. And so it's got to be bad, right? I mean, it, it, it has its roots rock music and blues and popular culture. So by its nature, it's inferior than the older stuff in, from a pure era. And again, that's not even close to a biblical idea. Because not only does the Bible say over and over and over and over again to sing a new song... Most people don't even realize that the idea of singing hymns comes right out of popular culture from the first century. You see, the word hymnos or hymn existed in Greek and Roman culture before Christianity did. It was the kind of popular music that was around before Christianity was. And this was the form of music that was popular in culture during the first century when Christianity was being formed. It was popular style of music. And so here's the shocking part. Okay, that most people don't know when you actually look up the, the etymology of this word is that hymn from the first century was a song originally to celebrate pagan gods and also heroes and conquerors. Understand that a hymn was a song that was sung to praise pagan gods, national heroes, and conquerors. These songs were the equivalent of what we, you know, would say is we are the champion or the eye of the tiger. This is what this, the style of music at the time when Christians began to, to create. This is what the kind of music that they used to communicate their faith. They were using what was popular in culture, the same style of music. You see, the Christians didn't create a brand new style of music on their own for Christianity. And they didn't revert simply back to the old Jewish forms of music. They took music that was current and popular and they transformed it into something that honors God. I bet you didn't know that. They took what was contemporary at the time and they began to write songs in that genre. And the church has been doing that ever since. I mean, I mean think about this. When you think of pipe organs, what do you think of? You probably think of old churches, right? Well, guess what? The pipe organ was once a contemporary instrument. In fact, um, what's worse is the pipe organ was actually the instrument that was used during Roman gladiatorial games when Christians were being killed. Okay? Think about this. The very instrument that provided the background music for the slaughter of Christians became the instrument that the church used to praise and honor and glorify God. And it's the same thing, it's not unique because it's the same thing with the piano. The instrument, the piano was once thought of as it belonged in bars and saloons and houses of ill repute. And the piano had no place in church. And then the church took it and redeemed it and made it something, a part of our fixture. And now for the last 200 years, the piano has been part of church music. 
And the same with congregational singing. There were, for, for many, many years, it was, it was considered wrong and even vulgar and crude for anybody else to sing but the choir that the congregation wasn't allowed to sing. You see, the church takes what is in culture and what relates to people, and it redeems it. You see, it has never been about genre. It's never been about style or instruments or voices or anything else that we make it out to be. Worship music has always been, and it always will be, about coming into the presence of God with gladness and joy and thanksgiving. Worship music must always be about God and express worthiness to God and be theologically sound. And it must help the singer, those who are worshiping, to focus his heart and her heart and mind on God and God alone. And so all the other discussions about instruments and timing and rhythm and beat and verses and structure and genre, they're unbiblical Issues. They're not issues that are rooted in the Bible. They're not issues that are rooted in anything else but, but, but controversy. They're issues that should, that, that should not cause division. These are issues that should not create tension between people. These are not biblical issues. They are issues of personal preference, oftentimes disguised with theological talk. But they are issues of personal preference nonetheless. But if you remember, worship has never been, never will be about my personal music preference. Worship is not about me at all. Worship is about God, regardless of the style or the age of the song. It's all about him. That's why we're supposed to be singing in the first place. We're to be singing to him. We're to be singing to, uh, not to appease our own emotions. We're to be singing, not to be entertained. We're to be singing to express the worthiness of God. We are to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We're to serve the Lord with gladness. We're to come into his presence with singing. We're to, to know that he is the Lord, that he is God, and that, he, that he, it is he who made us, and that we are his, we belong to him. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We're to give thanks to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That is why we worship. That is, and that is why it's not about us. And that's why our Sunday morning service experience must be more than music. And it must be more than just a song. Now, with all that, am I saying that the style of music is not important? No, I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that the music that makes you feel something isn't important either because it is important. What I'm saying is that God that we worship is more important is what I'm saying. And the God that we worship must be completely worthy. And that means he must be worthy enough of us to learn and to love and to worship the older songs that speak to the hearts of our brothers and sisters in Christ who grew up in that area. And at the same time, he must be worthy enough for us learning to love and to worship the newer songs that connect with the younger generation, that connects Christ to this generation. The thing that we have to understand is that, that music is a powerful and emotional tool that connects us to God. And, to, and, and, and you see, for those who grew up singing hymns that we find here in the Red Book, those songs, those songs are important to them. It connects, it connects them to a different time and a different place. 
It connects them to the time when, when life was simpler and when the world made a lot more sense. And those songs that also connects them to the joy that they discovered in Jesus. In fact, a friend of mine expressed to me that a certain song that we sing when we sing it, it's like God is cupping his heart. Okay, he feels close to God when he hears that song. That kind of music reminds people like him of the joy that they have in Christ. And more than that, these kind of songs have helped many of our brothers and sisters in Christ get through very difficult and trying times in their lives. It's been through singing these songs that they've been strengthened in their faith and in their walk and their trials. And so they're important. They're important and they're theologically rich and, 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 and they're important you know, to many people in our congregation and we need to remember to sing them and to, and to preserve them. And God is worthy enough for us to learn them because they connect so many of his children to him. Now, on the other hand, the new music is different. It continues to change. In fact, I want you to know when we call it, we say contemporary music, we're talking about stuff that's been written like 20 years ago. All right. I mean, most of the stuff that we sing, we do sing a few new songs. All right. But most of the stuff that we sing is actually already getting pretty old. Um, but, but, but we we must always be ready to embrace new songs and new music. And the reason is very simple. We must be ready and willing to meet this new generation where they are. Because the church and the music of your era met you where you were. And the music and the church of my era met me where I was. And we need to be ready to meet this generation where it is. And let me just tell you about this new generation. Okay? This generation doesn't remember when life was simpler. This new generation does not remember when life was simpler because it's not. This generation does not remember when the world made sense, okay? This, this generation has never, ever known the world to make sense. This generation has inherited a world where everything is broken. The government's broken. The family is broken. The educational system is broken. Neighborhoods are broken. And for many of these new generations, the church is broken because there's so many in the church who don't want to connect with this next generation. And let's be honest. This next generation won't relate to music the way we do or the way that you do. And they're not going to relate to church in the traditional ways that you and I do. In fact, you see, when you, when you hear music nowadays, listen to the words you see, the, the music's different, okay? You see, when, when we used to sing older songs, we hear, when we sing songs that are hymns and even older you know, contemporary worship songs, when you hear the words, you'll hear them talking about Jesus, okay? It talks about what Jesus is like. It's talking about Jesus in the third person. But the music we hear today is different. It isn't so much third person about Jesus. It's actually second person to Jesus. See, most of the music today's sung is toward Jesus. It praises direct, Jesus directly. I mean, think about this. When you hear the song, the words from the old rugged cross, it says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for the, for the world of lost sinners was slain. It's about Jesus, third person. Now you contrast that to lyrics like, so I shout out your name from the rooftops I proclaim, I'm yours. Or, or the song that, that has the word that says, this is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. I am desperate for you. I am lost without you. These songs are second person to Jesus. You see the difference 
isn't that this generation is uninterested in faith. The difference is this generation is desperate for a relationship that makes sense because none of their relationships make any sense anymore. Most of these people are growing up in divorced households who have extra family members like step-parents and step-siblings, and the blinds get really blurred with what that means, right? And most of these people grow up in a world where marriage is a joke and sex is just simply something you do with people that you're friends with, right? It's not even something that's sacred anymore. Relationships are just different and weird. People have grown up in a world that says whatever sexual deviancy that you have, you know, that's fine, Right? Whatever you're inclined to is okay for them, right? In fact, your gender isn't even a real thing, right? And so they've grown up in a world where all these relationship norms are just kind of getting thrown out the window. And, and these people are desperate to belong and they're desperate to be loved and they're desperate to have a real authentic relationship, a relationship with Jesus. And so for the rest of us, God must be worthy enough to sing and worship to ev- and, and even to learn and to love this new music that connects this broken generation to Jesus. And so our congregation, we need to be sensitive to all these generations. And we need to value God enough and to love God enough to make him worthy enough that, that when we're singing worship songs to him, maybe the music format isn't our first choice some Sundays. But God must be worthy enough that we can and still worship him no matter what the song is, and no matter how it's being sung, that God is worthy enough for us to, to, to make a joyful noise and come into his presence singing, even if the song choice doesn't resonate with us the, the way that we want to, because the truth is it resonates with one of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God is worthy of us being patient enough to allow that song or that music to draw our neighbor into his presence. That right there is the heart of worship when it comes to music. God is worthy enough for me to express my love and praise for him regardless of the song or style, especially when I know that that song is connecting someone else to him. Now with that, let me just wrap up this with a brief discussion of our worship philosophy here at First Baptist Church. Our worship philosophy is to create an environment where God is glorified by everyone in the sanctuary through the singing and the preaching of the word and fellowship of the saints. And if you didn't know it, if you belong to Christ, you're a saint. It doesn't mean you're good. It just means that you've been made good by Christ, okay? All right, but our philosophy is to create an environment where God is glorified by everyone, including young and old and single and married, male or female people, you know, with, with or without kids, and even people who have their lives together and people whose lives are a complete wreck. Our philosophy is to create an environment where God is glorified by everyone through the singing of songs, be they, you know, from the red hymnal or contemporary worship style. So we want God to be glorified through singing of songs and the preaching of his word, because preaching the word of God and listening to the word being preached is a form of worship as well as fellowship, you know, the getting together and the loving on each other, you know, and and fellow believers. That is our philosophy. That's what we're working toward Every Sunday as a ministry. And our goal is, when it comes to music, our goal is simply to remove every obstacle we can. We want to remove every obstacle that we can so that you as an individual can focus your heart and your mind on God. Our goal is to play and sing in a way that we fade into the background regardless of the song that we're singing. 
Our goal is to play and to sing in a way that helps you to enter the very presence of God. Our goal is is that as you sing, you are connected to and focused on God with all your heart, mind, and spirit. And when that happens and you're joined together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the song, you are joined together with your brothers and sisters in a unified voice, glorifying God and giving him praise because he is worthy of that. That is our goal. That's our goal this Sunday. That's our goal every Sunday. We want to help you to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We want to help you to serve the Lord with gladness. We want to help you to come into his presence singing with singing. We want to help you to know that the Lord, he is God. We want to help you to know that he is the one that made us and that we are his. We want to help you to know that that we are his people and his sheep of his pasture. We want to help you to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We want to help you to give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That is our goal. And we will strive for that every single week. And we will pursue that goal with all of our hearts and the musical abilities that God has given us, regardless of the song we sing, because we believe that God is worthy of that. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.